Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Today on First Lady and Friends, we had a great conversation with Neil Abercrombie. He is the senior advisor for legislative affairs and policy for the administration, the Cox administration, uh, formerly of Utah State. And we talked a lot about his time at Utah State and the things he's working on now. Can't wait for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. Uh, Today we have a a guest who I've known for many, many years, who has become a dear friend, um, a fellow Aggie, and entrenched in Aggie world. And so we we really connect on a lot of levels. Just a really uh, stellar human. We have Neil Abercrombie here. Uh, He is now not with with, uh, Utah State anymore, but um, welcome to the show, Neil. Yeah, thank you, Abby. Um, we yeah, we could spend the entire time just talking about Utah State University if you want. Yes, it's, go uh, Aggies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I have a friend who thinks that um, go Cougars sh- is trying to be a thing for her, and I said no, it's, it's not a thing. Yeah, it's it, just go Aggies. Yeah. That's that's the way it goes. Yeah. Um. So let's go back to to where you grew up. I know. Um. We both come from rural backgrounds, and I love hearing your stories about your your growing up and and your parents uh, there in southern Idaho, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I grew up in a really small town in southeastern Idaho, um, Aberdeen, um, which if anybody spent much time in southeastern Idaho, it's it's right off the I-15 freeway between kind of Pocatello and Idle Falls, and I say just right off the freeway and my wife reminds me, you know, it's actually a pretty long drive off the freeway. <laughs> it's about 30 miles uh, through potato fields to end up in my uh, hometown. But um, I truly grew up in the middle of potato fields in, in Idaho. Um, population of my hometown is probably about 1,100 people. Uh, my graduating class at Aberdeen High was about 90, or it was probably about, it was less than that. It was probably like 60 students yeah. in my graduating class. So small town Idaho. Uh, my mom still lives there. Um, some family still in Southeastern Idaho, some in Utah. So, yeah, it's uh, born and raised, same house, same community uh, the entire time. So, loved it. It was it was great. And tell me a little bit. So, you're you were there, kind of on a on a farm too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, we grew up. Uh, I mean, everybody there grows up with uh, with a connection to agriculture. Uh, my family actually, my parents were both educators. Mm-hmm. So, um, the recent conference you had. A couple of weeks ago on show up for teachers that uh, resonated with me personally because both of my parents were teachers. My mom was a fourth grade teacher, and then she was the librarian um, of what's really a community library in, in my hometown area. It was the high school library that also served as the community library. And my dad was a high school science teacher and then also the advisor for the FFA club there. So of course. both very <laughs> embedded into the public school system, uh, educators and and. Uh, so we always had a connection to agriculture. We were not necessarily farming as you know as much as growing up in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, and and you know what's interesting is even though Idaho, you know, it's really close 
um, Southern Idaho, a lot of similarities, a lot of connections to, to Utah. Um, but I think people don't realize, you know, in Utah, the the way our, our pioneers designed things that um, the community, they were really big on this sense of community, which I think is really neat and, and unique to, to Utah, where the the little towns were where you lived, but your farms were really on the outside. Now, Idaho, just over the border, it's very different. Yeah, it's very different. You are, most of the farm homes are on the farm. Yep. They're not, they're not in the, in the town. So when you talk about how, it, how spread out it is and how people are, I mean, farms are all around you. So it's, it's an interesting uh, difference there. Yeah. I mean, I say I grew up in Aberdeen, but technically if we drove uh, to my hometown, I grew up in Sterling because that's about 10 miles outside of Aberdeen and it's truly in the middle of potato farms. And it's uh, probably a little similar to maybe what you see in the Midwest yeah. where you have like more of the prairie homes and the, the farms surrounding it. And then people drive into the town for, you know, church or school or other things like that rather than everybody living there and then driving out to the farm, yeah. which is more of the pioneer Utah way. Yeah, and I always felt a little weird because growing up in in Mount Pleasant, I actually was outside of Mount Pleasant on a farm, and all of my friends they lived in town, yeah, and yeah. they would you know their farms or you know if they had farms were always out outside of town, which is where what Spencer did. His yeah, was yeah. they lived in town and they their farm was outside of town, which is it's just interesting. It is it? it's, it's different, and you know it's interesting too because we talk about. Um, Agriculture in Utah is such a, an important part of, of who we are and our identification, and, and especially rural Utah. Um, Idaho, it, it is that times 10, you yeah. know, because the commodities are – there's so much more quantity of production that's happening, whether it's, you know, sugar beets or onions or potatoes, of course. And it, the scale is, is much, much more significant, even just a couple hours north of the border. Yeah, it's it's really an interesting um, situation that we have. Yeah, here. yeah, really. <laughs> um, and we Utah always considers itself very agricultural. I think most of us sort of have some tie grandparents, great yeah. grandparents that had you know ties to agriculture, but um, we really are quite an urban uh, state. People yeah. don't realize that, which is it, it's interesting. Um, so, talk a little bit more about your family. So, you had your parents, and you had how many siblings? And do they did they all? You all grew up there, and yeah. So uh, my my um, my parents actually uh, lived in California for a few years after they got married. Um, shortly after they got married, my my dad got his master's degree at Oregon State University, and then he ended up doing uh, some research um, in California at UC Berkeley, um, animal science research, and so had a couple of uh, my older siblings that were born in California, and then they decided they really wanted to raise their family in Idaho. Um, my my mom's parents were from. Aberdeen, Idaho. My dad's parents are from Aberdeen, Idaho. So they were already going second home. generation. So they were going home and, and they decided they wanted to raise their family back on the farm. So um, myself and then uh, my older sister, the older sister closest to me, we were born in Idaho. Uh, my older siblings were born outside of the state. So I'm the youngest of six. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's really, really great opportunity for them to come home. They were close to um, both sets of grandparents for me. Um, my grandfather on my mom's side um, was a cattle rancher and had a had a cattle ranch also in southeastern Idaho. And then my grandfather on my on my dad's side, paternal side, he worked for USDA and did um, um, crop inspections. 
mm-hmm. uh, both with potatoes and sugar beets, and then would go to California during the the summer months and spring and and do uh, inspections of the fruit harvest in California. So both sides of my family were pretty embedded into the agricultural community just from different angles. Yeah, that's 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 incredible and and such great lessons. I'm sure you. Uh, learned what are what do you think was the biggest takeaway from from growing up in in that environment yeah it's interesting because um <clears throat> if uh if someone who knew me really well then or even some of my older siblings if they heard you ask me that question they would probably be rolling their eyes a little bit at my answer because <laughs> as the youngest and you probably have some people you know they would be like oh you, you never really worked on the farm like what lessons did you learn growing up on the farm of like like industrious approach to kind of an agrarian kind of approach to life. I, I, I admit I was not the farm kid um, as much as maybe my older siblings were um, in part just because, you know, things change over time and you've seen this, you know, um, my grandfather sold the cattle ranch when I was pretty young and, and retired and, you know, things start to change. I, I would say a couple of things that I, that I loved growing up where I grew up and they're still part of maybe my ethos now is truly a sense of community Maybe even more than what, um, you know, specific industry anybody was involved in. And a sense of kind of an egalitarian sense of that community. Like, Mm -hmm. there wasn't a stratification in my hometown of the lawyer's kids and the kids of the CEO or the doctor. It was just, you all worked related to the farm in some capacity. And there wasn't kind of an equal setting that that happened, that that I felt um, and also in a small town, I mean, you know, you talk about Texas and Friday night lights, but mm-hmm. even in Idaho, you know, we had a home basketball game and there are a thousand people live in my hometown and there would be 800 that would be at the basketball <laughs> game, exactly. you know, just yeah. a real sense of you're, you're really connected to everybody. Um, you know, there's a, there's a part where it's nice to get out of that and have a little mm-hmm. anonymity maybe somewhere else, but my dad, especially, and I think I've adopted it, loved going to the post office and knowing everybody there and going to the grocery store and knowing everybody there and just this deep connection to everybody you interacted with on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. We, it, it's comforting in a way um, when you've lived there a long time. Yeah. Sometimes it gets a little <laughs> intrusive. Yep. It can be a little smothering at times. Right? <laughs> but but yeah. at the same time, I mean, it does it, this, this balance of people who are genuinely care about you and want to take care of you and connect with you versus people are in your business. Yeah. And that's also weirdly comforting sometimes yeah. too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, very similar to the experience that, that you had growing up where it's the, the pros and the cons. Yeah. So. And, and I, it's funny cause Spencer there for a while he was, he was, you know, the mayor and he worked at the phone company and all the things in town that, you know, and he wore a lot of different hats. And he's finally said to me, Abby, I can't go to the post office. You're going to have to go. I will never get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, is really endearing and sweet. Yeah. Um, but also when you're in a hurry, you can. <laughs> maybe a little exhausting at the same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, so my wife uh, grew up in Utah and she went to um, a large high school. So she had a very different experience. I mean, her high school was basically the enrollment of her high school was bigger than my hometown. Mm-hmm. And so we've debated the pros and cons of both quite a bit. And I had what she would characterize a little bit more like the saved by the bell yeah. high school experience <laughs> where it's like you did everything because there was nobody else. If you wanted to do it, you you did it. And 
when we were dating and, and I said something about like, oh, yeah, you know, we had this football game. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, um, you played high school football? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I lettered as a sophomore. Of I was I like, did. Yeah. yeah, of course, you know, and she's like, yeah, I don't think you would have made the team at my high school. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the while well, I was able to do everything, the reverse was, you know, her high school, she had like Shakespearean literature and yeah. French and you know, Italian, all of these different course offerings where no way my rural school, are we taking a French class? You know, like there's limitations too on that. So it's true. There, there are trade-offs and that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with now. You know, we had all three of our boys doing high school at home and in Mount Pleasant at the high school there. And then now we have our daughter here in Salt Lake and her seeing her frustrations of, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I want to do all the things my brothers did. And she's just, she's not able to, yeah. I mean, yeah. but at the same time, she's taking an AP class that my boys didn't have any opportunity to take academically. She, I keep reminding her, you'll be so much further ahead yeah. academically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it, yeah, it's a trade off and, trade-off, and yeah. you do, I think, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know, I was able to do a lot of things. I think Spencer loves that he was able to do a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, yeah, we, we didn't have the greatest academic experience. Yeah. Limited on some of those <laughs> offerings for sure. Yeah. So, well, I want to get into what you've been doing and what you're doing now when we come right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. We're back here with Neil Abercrombie. He is. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about where you were. Yeah. Um. You've you've been a long time at Utah State, like we mentioned, and and you've made a transition recently. So let's talk about your work at Utah State before yeah. we get into that. Yeah. So um, I spent the last eleven years um, at Utah State University as the vice president of government relations. Um, as we talked about a little bit at the beginning, that's. Um, our alma mater for for each of us. So I had already loved Utah State before moving into that role. I didn't really know what the role was, to be honest, before I was hired. It was something that was kind of, I didn't even know the position existed. Um, President Stan Albrecht hired me um, at the end of, uh, I guess, 2010. Um, and I, I already loved a lot about Utah State, but I didn't know a lot about Utah State. So I moved into that position really to be, I guess, the chief advocate or lobbyists for the university, both on Capitol Hill and Salt Lake, and also in Washington D.C. So I work closely with uh, with President Albrecht and and the other university leaders, um, really advancing the mission of Utah State. and And I could go on for days about my passion for Utah State, in part because of its land grant mission. And we talked about rural um, 
America a little bit, rural Idaho, rural Utah, land-grant universities are really embedded in kind of a rural society across the nation. Um, Iowa State, Penn State, Oregon State, you know, Nebraska-Lincoln, these other land-grant universities across the nation are, are embedded with kind of a um, a service dynamic to the research that faculty are doing. Um, there's faculty for Utah State University all around the state of Utah, mostly in rural communities. So I, I really uh, love that opportunity, um, getting to know, you know, the students, the faculty, the, the research areas, and, and trying to advance that mission on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and it's you, you did a phenomenal job, and people knew you all over um, for for really – um, highlighting Utah State and and just showing off how awesome they are because <laughs> they are. So it's got to be an easy job. Yeah, right? I know. Uh, we're, Ish. Yeah, you, you, totally. I mean, my job was so much easier than a lot of other folks on Capitol Hill because there was this natural credibility that came with Utah State University yeah. um, as a partner in delivering solutions in communities. Um, you know, you go out to, to Vernal and chances are someone knows uh, – a faculty member that's there that's working on an interesting issue around ozone and clean air or something like that. Like there's there, there was you're you're right. There was a degree of credibility that made my job so much easier just based on the institution and who I was representing. Yeah, and there's some really incredible things happening at Utah State right now. I mean, talk a little bit about the I mean the grants and the and yeah. that we've Billion dollars? Yeah. So, so Utah State they they received a billion dollar project for the next ten years just at the Space Dynamics Lab alone last year. Um, and one of the things that's not to go too far in the weeds on this, but one thing that was really unique with Utah State University is there's a lot of research that's happening on kind of the main campus, the academic side. Um, the Space Dynamics Lab, which a lot of people don't necessarily know about, but if you live in Cache Valley, you absolutely know about it. It's what's called a university-affiliated research center, which about 50 years ago, the federal government and the Department of Defense selected about 10 universities across the nation to be essentially sole source research universities. So John Hopkins, Georgia Tech, MIT, um, Nebraska-Lincoln, a few schools like that. And, and they chose Utah State to be their partner with Missile Defense Authority. So there is this – when I talk about kind of the partnerships with the government um, – Department of Defense can turn over a research project to Utah State University's Space Dynamics Lab, have them work on it. There's also really cool NASA projects, the James Webb Telescope that yep. we're all talking about the images of. You know, Utah State University because of SDL had a part in some of the instruments with that telescope. So that was not only always exciting for me to go, but it was really it was really fun to see the students engaged in those projects and the faculty and, and the different you know. Um, leaders that were working on those uh, grants and, and contracts. Yeah. So we're, we're really proud of our Aggies. We're really yeah. proud of, if you didn't notice, <laughs> um, but we're, we think they're doing great things. Let's, let's get into you. You recently made, after being there so long, you made a transition. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was an agonizing decision. Yeah. Actually, I know it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but talk a little bit about uh, your, your transition and what you're doing now. Yeah, so um, it was actually kind of during the holiday break um, this last year, so um, right around kind of between Christmas and New Year's. Um, I knew this opportunity was opening up uh, with Governor Cox, um, and it, it was something where it, it was really tough. I, I love Utah State. I, I loved what I was doing, um, but I really saw Governor Cox as a unique leader, not only in Utah but really nationally as someone who really – 
was addressing big issues in um, a consensus building way of not just using the platform of elected office to talk about things, but to really drive policy solutions. And as much as I loved Utah State and what I'd been doing there, I wanted to be involved in some of these big picture issues for the state of Utah. Um, And I saw it as a unique opportunity to really be a part of that. Um, So in January, I transitioned from Utah State to um, this role, so Senior Advisor for Legislative Affairs and Policy, um, worked closely with the governor, lieutenant governor, the cabinet, um, um, senior staff on, on really trying to advance the governor's priorities and, and, uh, and vision on this. And, and I, I love it. It's, it's been exactly what I hoped it would be, um, both in tone and approach to these issues. Um, it's a very thoughtful administration that wants to understand the problem before throwing solutions at it. And, um, to me, having spent the last 10 or 11 years at Utah State University, a lot of the issues that I was really passionate about are still issues that the Cox administration is passionate about. Rural Utah, um, our natural resources, education. Um, these were things that, of course, I was already advocating for, and, and now I can see them from a little different vantage point and continue to work on them. Yeah, yeah. it's It's been fun to have you. It's just You're just such a great part of the team, and um, yeah, we're we're working on big things. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of those big things is higher education, and and just talk maybe a little bit. You've been in higher education for so many years. Um, there's there's a little disruption maybe coming to higher ed, and yeah. and there's just there's a lot that's that maybe people don't understand about higher education, and and maybe the issues. I mean, we're we're seeing maybe some workforce things that 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 maybe transitioning higher ed into something it hasn't been before yeah, or that yeah. some kind of a hybrid of, of how do we, how do we get the workforce of the future when we still are doing higher education, maybe the way we did it for so many years and, and does higher ed need to change with the, the, and adapt to the, to the new environment we're in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there are a lot of elements there that, of course, I've thought a lot about both in my previous role and my current role. Um, I'll try to be brief on this, but there's there's a lot <laughs> that I could say here. But uh, let me give you just really brief um, maybe history as I've thought about those questions that you just asked. So when I started um, working for Utah State um, about 11 years ago, I did think it was going to be a totally easy job. That Advocating for higher ed was like advocating for baseball and apple pie. Like it was about as American as anything else. It was just an understood proposition that higher ed was good for society. And that first legislative session, there was a very prominent uh, Utah state senator that said he felt like our universities and colleges in Utah were graduating students with degrees to nowhere, Mm -hmm. especially in the liberal arts. And I personally uh, studied philosophy (laughs) and political science. So that, uh, I, I took a little bit of personal offense to it. Um, but, I think you and Spencer are the only ones that graduated in political science that are working in political science. Yeah, no, there was, <laughs> I, yeah, there's definitely this question of like, what are you going to do with this degree? Right. And, and this this uh, state senator just called that out and said, what are we doing graduating these students? And, and we're not really preparing them for the workforce that they need to. And um, suddenly it put us in an advocacy position a little bit on our heels of how are we defining the value of higher ed? It's not... Just this understood outcome that you pay ten thousand, forty thousand, or in some cases a hundred thousand dollars to get a diploma, you're going to see a return on that. 
Um, and that was 10 years ago. And that criticism has just gotten louder and bigger. Um, so a couple of things that I feel on this, um, there absolutely needs to be some massive reform and some disruption. Um, my bias standpoint, I think there's some elements of hired that are very, very good in this. And I think Utah is in a great spot because relatively speaking, our tuition is pretty affordable. Um, our pathways to good careers are really good in this state. Um, you look at kind of the what lawmakers usually concerned about are kind of the stranded individuals that maybe invest in a degree but don't graduate, so they don't have the outcome. That's a high concern to them. Utah does pretty good on that, but we absolutely could improve a, a, a ton there. Um, I think the land grants are usually pretty well connected in this, but there's a lot of barriers to really reforming the academic side to match workforce. Mm. Some of it is um, – we used to say reforming higher ed is a little bit like turning a large cruise ship versus a speedboat, yeah. you know, like very incremental change takes time. It's not, you can't totally change the direction of an academic program overnight. Um, that's been the historical piece. I think there needs to be an acceleration of that. Um, I'll give you one example, you know, competency based, you know, do we start to recognize someone who has spent a summer selling something door to door that they don't need to take five courses in sales, um, sales <laughs> yeah. to get their, their, yeah. their degree in business. You know, maybe there's something there that we should start addressing. Um, and I think higher it's looking at it more, you know, Mitch Daniels in Indiana at Purdue university. Of course we talk about Michael Crow at Arizona state. I think, I think right here in the state, I think, um, Utah state and, and UVU, um, Brad Moore. I mean, I think you have innovative leaders, Taylor Randall, of course you have innovative leaders right now that, would agree with everything you said, Abby, and are trying to address it. There's just some built-in hurdles that make it harder to move that needle. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just as a, you know, somebody that went to college, uh, somebody that has three kids going yeah, to college yeah. this fall, um, I think uh, it it is changing. The students are changing, mm-hmm. and so we have to sort of adapt with it. Um, and the workforce is changing. So um, as, as higher ed, you know, they, they will change and they will, they will figure it out. And, but also I don't ever want to lose that. Um, there's a lot more that you learn in your university or college experience than just sheer academics or work preparation or labor you know, preparation for me, um, there's, there's some real life lessons, life, um, experiences that I think you don't, it doesn't show up on the sort of the spreadsheet of, of benefits. (laughs) Totally. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And there is this kind of dual focus that our universities, um, have played and need to play in our community and, and back to, rural America. I mean, for me growing up in the small town I grew up, it really was my experience as an undergrad where I started to meet people with diverse ideas, diverse backgrounds, challenging some of these pieces. And that that awareness is probably more beneficial than anything I studied in the classroom. Um, that said, there are a lot of students that they want the fast track to the computer science degree so they get on the job market and, and move on. I mean, and there has to be a path for that too. So how do universities can continue to foster this 
space for diverse ideas and opinions and backgrounds really that happens when people move there and locate and get together, get together. Um, I know you talk about being proximate and the proximity of, you know, I think that's so essential to what a university is. That's hard to do if everybody's learning online and doing a fast track program, you know? Yeah. And then, and then you sort of miss out on that, those kinds of opportunities. But at the same time, um, I, I, I sit here and try to think of, you know, the, the technology that changes we're adapting. What, I mean, did we see a big shift during the pandemic of people saying, I don't want to come be on campus. I would rather be elsewhere. Also, did we see a real change in how these 18, 19 year olds are coming to us as freshmen just emotionally? Yeah. uh, Maybe not as mature as, as they've been in the past because of the lack of connection these last couple of years. Yeah, I think it's a little bit bold. I think, um, I think we see the freshman class of the last year or two really craving the social interaction mm-hmm. because they missed out on a lot of that during their junior or senior year of, the, of high school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so those that, that did move to a college campus, I think they really wanted all of the engagement outside of the classroom mm-hmm. in addition to the in-person learning of a class. The The online experience of a student, I think that was already changing quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think students were already demanding more flexibility in the courses. They wanted to take a class on the weekend or in the evening so they could work or in Utah, you know, they, many students are married or maybe they have family obligations. There's other things that they're trying to balance their course activity with. So there were already a lot of demands for that diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID just accelerated that a ton. Um, I think now you're starting to see some surveys back that um, some things universities have gotten pretty good at as far as delivering online content and, I think adapting to the way different students learn that way. Um, there's been some really good feedback. And then at the same time, there's some examples where it's not a great replacement for the in-person learning. Yeah. And I think it gets back to higher ed's never going to go back to just a real traditional in-person ivory tower perception, you know, the way it has been. It's always going to have a dual role. Briefly, just touch on maybe the, I know mental health is a huge issue yeah. across the board. But we're seeing a huge demand for mental health services on our campuses and our universities or colleges. What do you do, – do you see that getting better? Do you see um, the universities being able to to adapt to that? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, so this was uh, this was eye-opening to me a few years ago. Um, when I was at USU, there was a student body president um, and student leaders that drafted a student resolution declaring a mental health crisis mm-hmm. on our college campus. Wow. And they came and met with me in my advocate, advocacy role and said, what do we do? You know, we don't have enough resources. We don't have the connections. And they, uh, the students, drafted a statewide resolution that they took to Capitol Hill to raise awareness to this issue. Um, the students also student-led, implemented a student fee to go to hire more therapists for mental health. Um, it was the students that that really kind of elevated this discussion on our campus, basically saying it, it, it is reach, reaching uh, a crisis point. Um, there's so many bottlenecks as far as like, you know, therapy. There are a lot of great things happening with like Safe UT and, and really providing opportunities, but a lot of those opportunities are really at like acute crisis. Yeah. 
Um, What we're finding is sometimes just a peer-to-peer connection. Um, One of the most successful things that I think a lot of universities have done is creating a a peer mentoring system, whether that's first-generation students that are maybe sophomores or juniors meeting with first-generation students that are incoming freshmen Mm -hmm. and talking to them about, yeah, college is hard or being a 19 or 20-year-old where you're balancing work and school and family pressure and you're also still at a point in your life where maybe developmentally you're you're changing. You know, all of these things are hard to not have someone to talk to and maybe you're living alone for the first time. All of the all of these factors it it can start to snowball yep. and get out of control pretty quickly if you don't have somebody that says, "Oh, that's totally that's totally normal." You know, let's let's yeah. talk about that or there's ways that you can deal with this anxiety or the stress and yeah. Um that was one thing that these student leaders really they they were amazing at delivering that message because as you can imagine, a lot of these a lot of these individuals were students you would think of, oh, they've they're on top of this. They're they're A students, they're engaged, they don't have a problem. And they were like, No, I I'm dealing with anxiety, I'm dealing with depression, I'm dealing with avoidance behavior. You know, I'm dealing with all of these things. And it's not just a, a student in isolation. It's all of us. Um so I, that's a long winded way of saying I, I think we're getting better. Yeah. We're certainly not there yet and and um there are resources that are available to enrolled students that I worry that sometimes are not available to the 18 or 19 year old that's not enrolled right. in a university that's maybe not embedded in, you know, doesn't have a, a peer mentor assigned to them because they're not living on a college campus or, you know, there's, there's a lot of youth out there that I worry that we still are not connecting them with the resources that we need to. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's, it's such a tough issue. Um, you are also working on some really important projects um, in with the state right now. And I want to get into those when we come right back. We're back here on first lady and friends with Neil Abercrombie at um, he's in the administration now here in Salt Lake and you, you're, Living here? No, you're Logan, still Logan. Yeah, no, still Logan. Yeah. Well, know, we, we know how that Cache commute Valley. goes. Yeah, it's it's a little better than it used to be in the <laughs> in the '90s when we were making it, and yeah. there was construction. Well, yeah. there's always construction. Yeah. But. You know, it's, it's it's fine. Well, hey, I want to get into you're doing some really incredible things. There are some big issues around the state. When we were campaigning, I'm telling you, there one thing comes up over and over and over again and still continues to because it's been a huge issue affordable housing yeah one of the biggest factors of happiness that people talk about is having your kids and grandkids around you as you get older mm-hmm. um i think that goes back to this sense of community and what the fear is and there was another statistic uh, that i think the highest level since like 50 years or more, I think it was pre-World War II maybe, maybe it was 70. I can't remember that. I, I shouldn't be saying this when I don't understand but what's, <laughs> what it is. But there are more um, adult children living in their parents' home than since forever. And that's an issue. Yeah. And there's a huge issue with us being able to afford. I mean, I'm thinking about my kids graduating from college. There's no way that they're affording a house right now. So let's, it's a huge issue and there's no one single, you know, magic bullet or we would have done it. So talk a little bit about the stuff you're working on with affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is one where I had mentioned earlier, you know, joining, joining the the governor Cox administration, I really wanted to get involved in, in big issues. And this is, it doesn't get any bigger than, than this. And it's, it, 
it really is related to the, the larger issue of growth and the the stress that growth is putting on our communities, um, both in the use of natural resources and land, but really the pressures with uh, with cost of living here. And and you're right. I mean, we would would take it for granted that you know children, their children, they'd all be able to afford to live in the same community that we live. And I was in a meeting the other day, and someone asked the question, "How many of you in the room?" We're not talking about you know, 19, 20 year olds, but professionals, you know, middle of their careers or, you know, how many of you could afford to buy the house you're currently living in? And a lot of people are, you know, probably couldn't now with their current job, buy the current house that they're in. Um, so what are we doing about it? Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about my experience working at Utah State University before Utah State University. I worked at the Utah League of Cities and Towns and worked closely with all of the different municipal governments across the state. And I still have a very uh, deep passion for the role of local government. And and this is one where sometimes it's a, a tense relationship between the state and local government as far as who's helping solve the problem and maybe who's restricting opportunities. And I think our local government entities are doing a lot. Um, I think they have a lot of pressure from their constituents saying that we don't want this kind of development in our backyard. There's a lot of nimbyism yeah. when it comes to this. And and I think all of us in Utah need to think a little bit more broadly. Yeah. Uh, maybe think of mixed-use developments in a way that we maybe didn't want in our neighborhood. Um, and think about diversity of housing. I think condos, for example, sometimes uh, people would look at them as like renters that would bring down property values in a community. And now sometimes you have these condos that are selling to first-time homebuyers at 500000 you know, these are not these are not um, property values that are diminishing the community. And I think thinking about that. So a couple of things that we're working on, we're spending a lot of time looking at the use of housing in a local community. And, and what I mean by that is um, short term rentals have increased significantly. Um, they were already on the rise in Utah uh, well before COVID. COVID definitely accelerated that. There's data probably shows anywhere from 20 to 25,000 homes in Utah that are on the short-term rental market. Um, you know, some of those could be used for first-time home buyers or renter, long-term rentals. So those are a couple of things we're working with uh, our local communities on. Um, looking at our major infrastructure zones, so where the state is invested in transit hubs. And and um, you go to, you know, you go to Washington, D.C., and you take the, the metro around. Any metro stop you get off, there's a huge housing complex right next to it. Yeah. There's demand to live next to transit. We're a little slower in the West towards that mentality, but I think we're getting better. You know, Farmington is working on a pretty cool um, high-density mixed-use development project next to their transit hub. And uh, communities that you maybe don't always think of that are doing that are, are doing some really cool things. So how we in the governor's office can work with those communities, support them, assist them, and in, in, in maybe help in some other areas on some policy reform. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's so many things that, that come together to try to help this and um, it's, it's no one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, you know, demand is demand and a lot of people want to be in Utah right now. And so do. a lot of and for the first time, I think in many, many years, people in migration is actually more than yeah, our internal growth. It is. And also the first time in many years, Utahns are perceiving growth as a negative to our quality of life. Yeah. Um, before, for the last couple of decades, we were 
pretty positive about growth because we saw it as stimulating our economy and Jobs building up Utah and, and all of these things. And, and now yeah. I think a lot of Utahns are starting to see it as diminishing our quality of life. It's creating congestion. It's creating reduction in access to trails and, you know, a lot of things that we value in addition to the housing market. Yeah. So. Yeah. Before we end, I want to really quickly, one really important thing that you're working on, it's um, really something I um, am really excited to hear what you're doing on it, but um, you're doing some things around domestic violence. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, domestic violence, sexual violence um, are, are things that are really concerning, I think, to not only the governor, but a number of our colleagues um, in the cabinet and in the executive branch. Um, it's one where we are a really safe state, um, and on most um, metrics of, of criminal activity, we're below national averages. And when it comes to violence against women, and we're higher. And um, there's things that we could do better. Some of it is maybe some better coordination and messaging. Some of it is maybe some some enhancements on the criminal side. Um, this conversation has kind of started a little bit with gun safety and access to guns on the domestic violence of someone's uh, – you know, a perpetrator, if there's an issue of domestic violence, making sure that they don't have access to, to weapons. And we've seen that with a large percent of the homicides that happen in Utah are domestic violence related or intimate partner violence of some sort. And it's not one single thing. Um, this involves multiple different entities of state government, you know, from inclusion and equity to um, uh, public safety and um, health and human services. And, and we really are trying to pull together all of those different resources and, and also a number of state lawmakers that are really concerned about this space too, and see if there's something that we can do more to, to keep our communities safe in, in those areas. Yeah, I love that. I think breaking those cycles of, of violence, we've talked a little bit about that and, and, you know, keeping not only adults, you know, the women safe, but children and growing up in that, we you know, we've been working a lot in the foster space. We've been yeah. looking, you know, working with that. It's really important to to address that. We don't want to have to remove children because there's violence in the home. Yeah, and some of it is is just a. Um, I appreciate you bringing it up because some of it is just being comfortable talking about it as an issue that needs to be addressed. I think is a big part of of this, and that's something. Back to my experience at Utah State, that we tried to do more. You know, certainly college students are often in a situation like this and, and spending more time talking about healthy relationships yeah. and what that needs uh, as far as the dialogue and, and the support. Um, so I think it's – I'm optimistic about it. I know it's it's a heavy topic, but I think there's a lot the state can do to to improve in that area, and we're working on it. That's amazing. Well, I know our time is short, and I so appreciate you coming in and, and speaking with us and telling us – um, all the amazing things that are that are going on and the things that are being worked on. I think sometimes people uh, don't realize all the ins and outs and the intricacies of, of this policy work. And so I really, really appreciate you doing that. We uh, look forward to seeing you again. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, I know a lot of the initiatives you have um, are overlap with a lot of things that we're working on on Capitol Hill. And, and uh, next time I get to come back and ask you questions. Perfect. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Abby. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.